Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On the show this week, World's Most Wanted. The docuseries profiles five individuals suspected of committing some of the world's most heinous atrocities. The FBI, Interpol, and entire nations are hunting them down. Millions of dollars have been offered for their capture, yet all but one of these fugitives continues to elude justice. Where are they hiding, and who is helping them? I'll be talking with Thomas Zribi, the series' executive producer. A few notes, this episode contains spoilers for World's Most Wanted, so make sure to watch the whole series before listening on. And due to the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio, and we really appreciate your understanding. Felicia Kabuga is among the world's most wanted criminals. Mechanisms need to be put in place to prevent movement of these perpetrators. Interpol's looking for her, CIA, MI5, they're all looking for her. Effettuiamo delle intercettazioni telefoniche, piazziamo delle telecamere. She was planner, she was motivator, she was organizer. She understood the nuances of avoiding observation and surveillance. I think she got a kick out of it. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed the series. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Tell me more about your background and what led you to write and produce this series. Well, I am a, I'm a journalist since about 20 years, I'm, so I'm getting old. Sorry about that. And uh, <laughs> I traveled a lot around the world and did a lot of uh, international series and a lot of about, about uh, you know, like big uh, wars, uh, big criminals, this kind of stuff. So... I would say about two years ago, uh, I had this idea of doing a series on the the most wanted criminals all around the world with my colleagues here in my small French uh, Parisian uh, production agency here. And uh, we started to try to find the uh, criminals uh, who, who have interesting stories and try to find uh, different types of crimes. So uh, we started to write a, a project that we we sent to Netflix and, you know, it was a small idea that became a huge adventure and now it's uh, all around the world and it's, uh, it's crazy, crazy for us. I really did, I'll tell you, as someone who also works in journalism, really appreciated the very journalistic take that this series has. I mean, I think 
you really do an outstanding job providing enough context and background with these stories that it's more than just about the bad guy or the bad woman in uh, at least one of the episodes. It it really does give a, a primer, as we'd say in English, uh, on the background of a story. And I know you had a lot of hands-on work with episode two about Felician Kabuga. What made you decide to direct that episode? Because that is a very big story, the Rwandan genocide, how it played out, everything that led up to it. What made you decide to work on that one specifically? Well, for me personally, it was the man I wanted to work on because, uh, uh, you know, a genocide, we, we say it's the crime of crimes. It's the biggest crime uh, that is, you know, that exists on, on, on Earth. It's very, um, it's uh, horrifying. It's very uh, frightening, the idea of a genocide. So uh, as a journalist, as a human being, it's, uh, it's uh, very interesting to work on, a, on, on something like that. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I've been very interested by this genocide against Tutsis in Rwanda since a, lo- a long time, since I was a kid, because it happened when I was a teenager. And it's, it's, it's something very big in my personal memories, you know. So I really wanted to, to, uh, to work on this one. And uh, the crazy thing is that this Felicien Kabuga was arrested uh, a few months ago, uh, the 16th of May, it was the day of my birthday, so I had a SMS in the morning, I couldn't believe it, and he was arrested just to, very close from where I live, so it was, it was crazy. We, we, we traveled all around the world to try to find the guy, and finally he was just, uh, you know, next door. It was, it's crazy, crazy story, and you don't, you know, you don't go out of this kind of work uh, without, with no uh, consequences. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very... Um, it's very deep, it's very uh, frightening, and it's something to talk to survivors of the genocide or to uh, uh, criminals. You know, you don't go out of that uh, with no consequences, personal consequences. In the episode, you do talk about what people believe Kabuga's role was in the genocide, you know, the importation, the, the financing of all these weapons um, and, and more. Why did he do this? I'm just curious. In your research, do you have an opinion about this? Well, first of all, I have to say that um, he's going to be tried because he's he's been arrested. So mm-hmm. uh, actually, he's not uh, considered uh, guilty. So he's still, you know, officially innocent. It's important to say. Correct. But uh, he's accused of uh, having uh, financed and paid for the for the weapons. It's a crazy idea to say when you, t- you think about a genocide, you know, for me, I, it, it took me a while to understand when someone said once, you know, when there is a genocide, you need someone to pay for the genocide. I said, what? I never thought about that uh, that way. And it's uh, a guy who is accused to have uh, paid for hundreds of thousands of machetes, to have paid weapons, to have paid the militia and who, to have paid for the, um, the radio RTLM that uh, it was, a, you know, it's called the hate radio because uh, the journalists on this radio, if I can call them journalists, were uh, asking people to to go and kill the Tutsi all around the country. And uh, it was a country at the time where there was almost no TV and the radio was the main uh, media. And uh, and it had an, a huge impact on uh, on what happened. So uh, what led him to, um, to be into this uh, genocide? Well, he was a man very close to the power and very close to the president. Abiyarimana, who was killed just at the beginning of the genocide, and uh, and the the power before the genocide had started to discriminate and to um, you know there was like some kind of apartheid. I mean, it could be uh, compared to the apartheid in uh, South Africa against the Tutsi before the genocide, and he was very close to this power. 
that was discriminating the Tutsi for years. And uh, personally, why he went into that, it's, a, it's still a very big mystery. How do you decide to pay for machetes just to kill babies and, and, and women and, and old people? It's very hard to imagine, but uh, it was a, an ideological um, movement with a political movement, with uh, people uh, who had the power, the army and uh, a government that decided to ge to do a genocide against a part of the population. It's, it's, it's something crazy. I go back to your previous question, but it's something crazy to imagine that. And, and the last thing is we didn't think that it could be possible that the, these kind of things ha would happen again in our, in our history after what happened in Europe uh, 70 years ago. I mean, I, I do think we see some reflections of some of those same political dynamics in some countries around the world today, including the United States, uh, including France. We've seen some um, unrest there and some propaganda and, you know, some it's 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 just it's really horrifying to sort of see the most extreme version of that. I want to ask you about episode one. I think of all of the episodes uh, the Sinaloa cartel is probably the storyline that American viewers would be most familiar with. Of course, we just had the very high profile trial of El Chapo uh, that took place in New York. Uh, we had a lot of media stories, which you, you know, refer to in the episode. You know, we have Sean Penn, you know, sort of inserting himself <laughs> into the into the cartel at one point. But we don't know about, you know, we, we know a lot about El Chapo here, but I really did not know a lot about El Mayo, um, El Chapo's compatriot, as he's referred to in this series. That's intentional, right? He stayed under the radar on purpose. Yeah, it's uh, so the the film was directed by my my colleague uh, Paul Morera, and uh, he uh, the, the idea of this uh, episode was to to talk about the, the the guy in the shadow because the Sinaloa cartel was uh, led by two men, El Chapo, who's always like to talk to the press, and this other man, El Mayo. There are only a few pictures of him. He never talked to anyone. He's very discreet. He's called the the the, the ghost. You know, and uh, the invisible man and uh, this man uh, uh, was as important and maybe more important than El Chapo in the Sinaloa cartel. And he's still the big boss of the cartel now. And it's, uh, it's uh, of course, a lot more complicated to arrest him because he's much more discreet. He doesn't make any mistakes. I think it's very uh, interesting in this episode, like in the other episode, we, we, we try to talk about people who are very, very important in the organized crime. But uh, you, maybe you never heard about them or just a little bit. So they are not uh, this famous, but they are, they are still very important in, into, the, into the, the crime, the organized crime. One thing that really made me curious was, you know, El Mayo, Ismael, um, his son ends up being arrested in a government organized sting and they hold him for a really long time. And he's ultimately put in contact with his father, El Mayo. And El Mayo tells him, you know, do what you need to do. Tell them what you need to tell them. To protect. I, that really surprised me, given uh, Ismael El Mayo's own ability to not talk and keep quiet. What, what did you make of that? Well, it's a it's a well, it's it, it, it's a crazy uh, story that was uh, that is uh, told in this uh, in this episode. But the thing is, uh, the idea that in big, uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, crime organization there's like a sense of honor and no one betrays no one it's a fake idea i mean uh, el mayo betrayed el chapo when he needed to that's the the the, the conclusion of this episode and he used his son to uh, betray uh, uh, his friend 
So uh, that's a that's a crazy story that is told. And uh, and at the end, uh, he protected his son uh, before his uh, his uh, as- associate. So uh, the, the the what is told in the movie is that uh, El Mayo finally betrayed uh, El Chapo. That's right. Now, there was some incredible access inside the Sinaloa cartel. A crew, a film crew actually interviewed soldiers on the ground, cartel members. How did that happen? Well, it's it's very, very complicated to do that. So it takes time to get the right contacts. So I have to... Uh, to say that it's uh, the great job, uh, my, my colleague's great job, you know, uh, Paul Morera, because he found, he f- after a long investigation, he found a guy who knew another guy who could get uh, get him into the cartel and and he could spend a few hours with the uh, cartel members and, 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 and film them. And they had to be very careful because there's, a, it's all, there's always a possibility of an army operation. And also when they were filming, they were very... Uh, Worried about uh, the guy showing his face because his face is hidden, uh, uh, you know, by like uh, some kind of uh, shawl, you know. And uh, yes, and, and he was very... smoking through it. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. uh, that was a great and, shot of smoking the was, cigarette through his face yeah, scarf. Yeah, and he was uh, worried about uh, the guy showing his face uh, by mistake because uh, it would have been a problem if, if he had filmed his face. But uh, it's a uh, it's a long investigation, and it's. Um, it's, it takes a long time to get uh, good contacts that can lead, lead you to these kind of guys. And uh, when you get the contact, they decide when, where and how you can film them. And uh, you just, uh, you know, follow the rules. And, uh, and when, when it happens, it's a, it's a great success, journalistic success. To me... I'll tell you, one of the episodes that I was most fascinated by was the Samantha Luthwaite White Widow episode. This is a woman who has been connected to several high-profile terrorism attacks uh, around the world, including in London um, and including in Africa. She has really, as your episode shows, a very seemingly normal background, you know, grew up in Northern Ireland with a father who was in the British Army up there, you know, working on ostensibly anti-terrorism operations against the IRA. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the episode touches on that. They talk about you have a couple of journalists talking about her background being relatively normal, but she also did grow up in with, with the background of terrorism as part of the fabric of her life, right? Yes, because his, uh, her mother was uh, Irish uh, from, uh, and his and uh, her father was a, a soldier of the uh, English army. So uh, at the time when there was a terrible war there, so uh, it's a very strange family. And for an Irish woman at this time, it was crazy to marry an English soldier. So maybe she grew up. Uh, in a very, uh, I would say, special family because of that. And then the thing is, uh, is she's very much the girl next door. She's a very uh, pretty, young, uh, uh, English, blue-eyes girl and uh, living in a you know, small town in England. And, uh, and she was, uh, you know, part of this, maybe one of the first generation of uh, Westerners uh, who decided to go and fight for um, religious war, jihad, you know. She's one of the first famous people who who left uh, Europe to go to. Uh, she went to Somalia, Kenya, and Somalia, and, and later, and, uh, and recently, people went and went to Syria or Iraq. But she she's one of the first generations of that. It's very terrifying because you feel in this episode that maybe anyone can you know be convinced by this crazy ideology. Hmm. 
I was really fascinated by, you know, around the 2005 uh, London bombings in which 56 people died, by the way, four suicide bombers set off explosives in that coordinated attack. Um, She was married to one of the suicide bombers and then did a media interview afterwards. And we talked to the journalist uh, Jamie Pyatt, who scored that interview. Um, I found myself wondering, because it seemed like at the time... There was a possibility that she wasn't involved, that she was his wife, that she you know, was sort of outside the plot. I found myself wondering if maybe she was involved before, like that if she had married him for this reason, maybe she was radicalizing people a lot sooner than was thought at the time. What do you think about that? Uh, it's very probable that uh, she was involved in the organization of these uh, attack, terrorist attacks. And if, of course, she was already radicalized before the attacks. And of course, they had conversations about that with her, her husband. And it was, it was pretty obvious. It was pretty obvious because, you know, uh, they were very, very religious. I mean, in a crazy way. And they had uh, they had had a lot of uh, her. Uh, she and her husband had uh, a lot of contacts with the uh, very uh, radicalized people before the attack. So it was pretty obvious that she was in to it. But at the time, uh, the English police, like other polices in the, in the, in the Western world uh, later, thought that because she was a woman, she couldn't be involved. It was, a man, it, was, it was a man thing. So when she's interviewed and she says, you know, I'm a poor widow and uh, I'm, you know, like a victim of these attacks, I couldn't imagine that my husband would do that. What am I going to do with my children? I mean, uh, everybody believes her except the one uh, investigator of uh, Scotland Yard that we interview mm. in this film. But everybody believes that she's just, you know, a poor girl and she's a victim of her husband. And it was crazy. Of course, she was involved in the... I mean, may, may, I don't know how much she was involved, but of course, she was aware of what was happening and she was aware and she, uh, of uh, what her husband was uh, going to do. So it's, it's pretty crazy uh, that uh, almost nobody imagined that she could be into it. Now, I do think that the attack at the Westgate Mall uh, in Nairobi is, to me, one of the most stunning and and memorable high-profile acts of terrorism in in recent memory. There are several great documentaries. There's a photojournalist that won a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of that. Um, So I'm curious, you know, what is the question about her involvement there? That she was a mastermind behind it? That she was somebody who... Uh, helped resource it, coordinate it. What do we think her involvement with that was? It's a very good question because we don't precisely know. What we can say about this uh, terror attack uh, in the Westgate Mall in uh, in Kenya is that um, the facts are uh, inside the mall, Samantha Luzwait was not there. But a few months before, a terror uh, terrorist cell was apprehended in Kenya and she was part of it, but she was not arrested herself. And uh, the, the man who was arrested said that she was uh, the chief, the leader of this terrorist cell. And we know that this terrorist cell had planned to do uh, terrorist attacks against bars and uh, malls. I mean, it was part of their plan. So, And, and just a few months uh, later, there was a terrorist attack in Kenya against a bar and then against this mall, this Westgate Mall. So it's uh, very much uh, probable that uh, she was involved, I don't know how much in the organization, but she was into the reflection about where uh, they, they could uh, hit in this country. She was probably part of the, of the people who thought about, you know, where, where are we going to, uh, to do the, 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 the terrorist attack? Maybe more, but we don't have a, you know, it's not certain. It's very hard to know exactly who organized that, how there were probably a lot of people uh, who organized this uh, terrible uh, attack. 
and she was probably around. I don't know how much. We don't know how much. Maybe a lot, just maybe just a little bit, but it was part of her plans a few months before. I want to talk about episode four's character sort of at the center, Semyon Mogilevich. The reach of this guy, not only the lives that he's taken both directly and barely indirectly, just ordered people to kill, plus his international reach in finance and in, you know, assassinations in other countries. I cannot believe the scope of criminality around this guy. Um, Can you just talk about him, this boss of bosses, and the sort of looming presence he has over so many things going on in the world right now? Yes, uh, he's uh, he was born in Ukraine uh, right after the uh, World War II in a Jewish family, and uh, he uh, you know he grew up uh, in the streets of Kiev, and uh, and he very uh, soon started to be a small criminal, and then he became the boss of a small organization, and then the boss of a huge criminal organization, and he. Uh, he did everything, you know, like uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, weapons trafficking. And uh, he was the boss of, I would say, a huge mafia all around uh, Eastern Europe. And then he started to to uh, try to uh, conquer the United States. And that's when uh, his problems started, I would say, because uh, he uh, became, um, I mean, he, he started to be on the FBI most wanted list. And uh, but uh, he has a lot of passports. He has a Hungarian passport, uh, Ukrainian passport, Russian passport, Israeli passport. He was very connected to the police authorities. He always had tips. Uh, you know, when there were police operations, he had tips. He's a very, very powerful man with a lot of political connections. So the result of that is it was impossible to arrest him. And, and he killed a lot of people. Like all the people we talk about in this series, he's accused of having killed a lot of people to have a lot of blood on his hands. And today, we know where he lives. That's the crazy thing. I mean, he lives in Moscow, in a comfortable house. We know where. And uh, Russia doesn't want to, uh, to extradite, even to arrest him. So he's still there. And he's uh, protected by the, by the Russian state. And even if he's still wanted by the FBI, as long as he stays... In Russia, he doesn't risk anything, and uh, sometimes he, sometimes he shows his face. So that's very immoral. This uh, story, because uh, you know he doesn't risk anything. I mean, he's there and he's comfortable, and he killed uh, a lot, and uh, he's still a free man and a rich man and wealthy man, and uh, and nobody will arrest him. Probably that's a. Uh, I think it's a. Uh, it's maybe I don't know what you think, but uh, I think it's the the sad part of the stories. It's a. Uh, in uh, four of five of these uh, episodes, uh, people are not arrested, and uh, and it's it's terrible because these people are are, uh, are very violent and uh, bloody people, and uh, they are still free. It's uh, it's terrible. It is. I will say the reason he's different. I mean, if you look at El Mayo, if you look at well, Kabuga was arrested, but El Mayo, Luthwait. Um, and Denaro, they're all hiding, or they're all on the run, or they're all being protected, right? And Mogilevich is operating fairly out in the open, and it really seems like global politics are shielding him in in certain in a certain sense. You know, it's sort of like, you know, Russia's part of Russia's flexing on the global stage. You know, a lot of people say, you know, in their activities in Ukraine and their election interference in the United States, and you know, all of the other things that have been both proven and that are there that are alleged to have happened. The sort of upholding of these characters, of these very powerful figures, 
seems to play into their politics in some way. And that's it's very interesting for me the way that um, there is a reason why he's being protected. And that's why his power is so stunning to me. It's stunning to me that he was able to set up a fake company in the United States that at one point was valued at a billion dollars. You know, that's incredible. A magnet company. Yeah, yeah, it's, right? it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly why he's protected. We can imagine, but we can o- only imagine. And because we're journalists, we don't want to imagine. We just want facts. So the fact is he's protected uh, by the Russian state. And, uh, and uh, probably it's better for the Russian state to have him there free than to arrest him or to extradite him. So uh, why? Well, we don't know. Um, we we heard before that uh, mafia people or mafia guys are protected by Russia sometimes, and uh, it's not only Russia. Other co- we talk about other countries that protect uh, uh, very huge criminals. And uh, I, I live in France. I am French. And the end of the story of Felicien Cabuga is that he was finally arrested in France, but he could hide in France pretty. He, I mean, he was living pretty comfortably in France since. Uh, long time so maybe uh, you know he would maybe he was not protected by the state but he was not you know that much uh, you know uh, wanted by the french police so uh, you know sometimes uh, things happen in in uh, you know between criminals and some authorities you don't exactly know why but it's a fact that these guys most of these guys are protected mogilevich is protected like el mayo is in a way, protected because uh, they have so many, so much power and so much connection, so many connections with the police and the authorities, political authorities. Mogilevich is protected by a state, and uh, Denaro, you know, Cosa Nostra, they have so many links also with the politicians, police, justice. Uh, so uh, you know, Samantha Lusuet is different because she's a member of a terrorist organization. But the four men we talk about, they all have a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of protections political protection, and uh, that's why they could hide for so long. And uh, I think that's the conclusion of the series, is that when you are rich, powerful, and you have political connections, it's easier to hide for that long, to stay on the run for that long. Well, as you point out several times throughout the series, I think especially in the Sinaloa episode with El Mayo, it is very much sometimes in police and authorities' best interest to side with the bad guys because it provides them protection. They can do other parts of their job better. I mean, heck, we even heard the DEA officers talking about how they'll make deals with very bad guys to get a different bad guy. That's what informants do all along, right? Is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's crazy. That that, that that particular part is for me is crazy. When the DA man says that uh, we can deal with a bad guy to arrest another bad guy, that's a problem, isn't it? I, I mean, I think there's a moral problem. Yes, of course. Oh, you, sure. I mean, so, these, are the, these are the compromises that have been yeah. making all the time. That have... maybe they have to do it. To do it. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Uh, of course, I, I I won't tell police how to do their job. I don't know how to be, uh, you know, investigator or DA. I don't want to tell anyone how to do their job, of course, but it's still a problem. I mean, you deal with the big boss of a cartel to arrest another one. It's very, very problematic. And it's the same thing in uh, several episodes. I really want to talk about the Matteo Messino Denaro episode because Cosa Nostra, Sicily, it is a very different kind of environment for organized crime than the global stage of the other four episodes, right? Sicily, yes. in many ways, this the monstrosity of the crime is extreme of the or of of the death of the the toll that this organized cr- uh, 
this organized crime family has taken on this part of the world. But in many other ways, it's almost like a small town story. Like everyone knows everybody. There seems to be a lot of personal connections just made on the street. You know, police spy the woman they suspect of being his girlfriend just walking around in this town where they think he might be hiding out. Can you just talk about just how different the stage is for that Cosa Nostra episode? Yes, yes. It's, it, I really agree with you. This episode is pretty special because uh, you stay in one place. And uh, I think the directors, uh, Cyprien and Caroline Dussain did a great job showing that place and feeling the atmosphere of the south of uh, Italy, the Sicily, and uh, and to show you know these, these small villages where, as you said, everybody knows everybody and uh, and uh, there are family stories, you know, like revenge stories, and uh, uh, I think it's very um, interesting how they did their work in the in this uh, in this country. Uh, but the, you know, when we talk about the Italian mafia, it's uh, it's uh, it, it's usually romanticized in movies or in, in in books, but we're talking about organizations that that uh, organized uh, terror attacks against Italy in the 90s because they wanted uh, to change the law, um, uh, the law uh, that said that mafia leaders uh, uh, would go into prisons that were not in their region. I mean, it's a stupid law about mafia leaders when they were arrested and they put bombs in the biggest streets in the biggest uh, cities of Italy just to fight against the law. I mean, it's a huge organization that totally, uh, um, you know, uh, harmed the whole country. I mean, it's a huge organization in small villages, but they did, they, 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 they put bombs, they killed people, they, uh, uh, they uh, even we, we tell the story of, of this kid that was, uh, who was uh, killed because uh, his uh, father decided to talk to the police. And uh, so it's a, a cra- as you said, it's a crazy and huge organization organized in a sm- in small villages with very special Italian and small atmosphere. So that's what I really like about this the the episode. I, I do think a real standout character. I mean, all the characters in this episode stand out for different <laughs> reasons. But um, Giuseppe Cimarosa. Uh, the proud son of a mafia trader, as he yeah. introduces himself, as we see him gallop up on his beautiful horse. Um, <laughs> we're really treated to some incredible scenes of family dynamics here and how, you know, his mother, who was Denaro's cousin, and he kind of disagree with what they're willing to say uh, about, you know, what they know. And it's very intimate. And I'm curious to know when you were you know, sort of looking at the different scenes and the cuts of this film, what you thought of the fact that this series, which had taken us all over the world, you know, one of the most memorable scenes takes place at a kitchen table between a mother and son, it's sort of disagreeing yeah. about what they're going to what they're going to say. It's total impro. I mean, they didn't. Uh, uh, Cyprien and Caroline didn't expect that. I mean, when they interviewed the son and the mother, they didn't expect that they would uh, have a fight, like pretty violent fight, in front of the camera. And uh, the son is very, very angry, uh, 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 and uh, the mother also is very, very angry. I mean, he he accuses the. I mean, he hates Cosa Nostra, and he hates the, this organization, and and the, and he doesn't care. He says the son. He says, "I don't care." I mean, they they they. Uh, I hate them. Papa è morto. È difficile. Ha la sua vita questa sì, cosa. Sì, ma è, è morto. Giuseppe. Quando te parli devi parlare dei messina denaro, no? Della mafia. Perché sembri spaventato. Giuseppe. Giuseppe. Tanto. Non mi spavento. And the mother is still afraid, so she doesn't she doesn't want to, you know, say 
too many things against them. So it's a, I agree, it's a crazy scene, and they didn't expe- they didn't expect that. But when they came back from uh, this uh, this trip in Italy, they also both said that they had something very special. It's a very intimate uh, scene that shows the uh, how the mafia can come out I mean can come in your room in your kitchen and can provoke intimate fights in families it's a it's a crazy organization that comes into your kitchen so it's a I agree with you it's a very important scene that shows uh, how powerful can the mafia be even in your own kitchen are you you know Kabuga was obviously arrested after you did a, a lot of this project and then you were able to include that in the final cut of the film are you hopeful that arrests will come or apprehensions will come of the other four people you profile in World's Most Wanted? Well, I would like uh, I would like them to be arrested because it's, uh, you know, justice is the only truth. I mean, we, we make films, but the, the, the truth is justice. I mean, uh, as long as they are not judged, they are not guilty officially. So, of course, I would, I would love all these people to be arrested. I think Mogilevich won't be arrested because he's... As you said before, he's not even hiding. He's he's living freely in Russia. I'm not I'm not sure um, El Mayo will be arrested because he's you know as they say in the film, uh, war against cartel is over. I'm not sure uh, Mexicans will try to get him. So I think he's pretty well hidden there in uh, in Mexico. Samantha Luswait, if she is in Somalia with the Shebab, no one goes there to arrest her. I mean, she's very well protected. So the only one. Who could be arrested, I think, is uh, Denaro, Matteo Messina Denaro, the Italian uh, Cosa Nostra man. We really felt during the, the, the filming of this, uh, of this episode that the Italian police uh, was really uh, trying to get him. And uh, they were, it was really their priority. Uh, he's the last big boss of Italian mafia who is still hiding. And I think the uh, the Italians are really trying to get him, and I really believe they're gonna gonna arrest him. I really hope they're gonna arrest him, and I really trust the Italians to that they will uh, succeed. Well, maybe somebody who watches this series who sees a man with those strange cat eyes will uh, give a tip <laughs> that will lead to that. Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I am curious. A final question: Given what you know about the kind of you know people who watch Netflix right now, everybody is watching Netflix. You know, young and old. It's, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the the service is doing really well for those of us who can't go out very often. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what are you hoping people will take away after watching World's Most Wanted? I think uh, maybe people will understand, as we understood, because when we started this project, we, I mean, we didn't know everything, of course, uh, that, um, uh, first of all, uh, when you are rich and powerful, you can, you can, you know, stay on the run, you can stay free, and it's terrible, and it's not uh, fair, but it's, you know, that's the truth. And the second thing is that there are certain zones in, you know, in, in the world where you cannot be arrested. There's no justice. Uh, you know, like dark zones like Somalia, we talked about Somalia, or this uh, Sinaloa, you know, state in Mexico, where, you know, no one can get to these people. So there are certain zones where you can't do anything. And it's also unfair, but it's the truth. You know, some some places you can hide and no one would get you. So uh, it's terrible. Uh, it's terrible to think about that, but it's uh, the truth. And... Um, so maybe people will understand that. Maybe people will understand other things. Maybe people will uh, get interested in uh, some crimes they didn't they didn't hear about before. We talked about the genocide against Tutsis in Rwanda. Maybe the Italian mafia. People will learn about that and will 
want to learn more about what happened and who these people are. And uh, we had a lot of uh, feedbacks for, from victims and uh, who were very happy that we talked about what happened and all these crimes because the victims, they want not to be forgotten. You know, you know uh, families of victims or people who were harmed in the terror attacks, they want us to remember what happened and who these, these criminals are and what they did. So I, I think for them, it's important that we did this work, I hope. I think it's important to you. The series is fascinating. It's called World's Most Wanted. Thomas, thank you so much for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer and director Thomas Zribi. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.